Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon alongside St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4. This podcast will explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. Today, the Community Safety Podcast turns its attention to community policing and neighbourhood policing. My guest joined Cornwall Police in the late 80s. He then went on to be a community sergeant and had some amazing results working with the community and in particular the young people to turn around antisocial behaviour and reduce it to significant levels. Please take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. And then I uh, joined the army. Uh, which I loved, absolutely loved it. And I was I ended up in Belfast for a while. And that's when I really saw antisocial behavior at its, at its most extreme. It was incredible, yeah, absolutely incredible. The intimidation, the violence, seeing four-year-old children running around a burning car, dancing around a burning car at two in the morning. I never forget that. Thinking, I, I remember looking at them thinking, you poor buggers, you know, what sort of life, you know, the parents were all there egging these kids on. It's now time. This is the Community Safety Podcast, Community Safety Podcast. with Jim Nixon. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon, and I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. So please tell a friend or two to listen in. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as David Ainsley. David grew up in his early years on RAF bases and also experienced some very interesting experiences in places like Bahrain when he was growing up. He then went on to serve for the British Army and had some very interesting stints in places like Belfast. He then went on to join the police service um, down in Cornwall where he eventually went on to be a community police sergeant and did some absolute amazing work um, changing communities for the better, working with young people and really putting a different approach to community policing that produced some real results. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the Community Safety Podcast uh, today. Thanks for having me. It's brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. Thank you. I know I've been trying to get you on for a while, so it's really good to have you on. Um, I always start my podcast off by just starting. I want to know a little bit more about my guest and a little bit more about your early life. So would you mind telling me a little bit about your sort of growing up years and, and what that was all about and what it was like? Yeah, so uh, I my my father was in the Air Force, so uh, I only ever knew living on Air Force bases until quite later in my sort of teenage years. And uh, the thing about Air Force bases was they are isolated because it's got an airfield and it's in the middle of nowhere, so they're in the country, and they were all pretty much designed the same way. So they were, no matter where you go in the country, they all pretty much look the same and what you've got is a load of uh there were actually good quality houses with the kitchen windows looking out onto the playing areas 
so that the mums could sit, because the mums never worked in those days, because I'm 62, so oh, yeah, of course. you could go back. Yeah. Mums never worked. They were in the kitchen doing housework and stuff, and the kids were out playing in the school holidays, and the mums could see them playing. And if you fell over and cut yourself, any mum would come out and look after you. So it didn't matter, you, you know, anyone that was there seen, and you and the, the dads would be working weird military shifts, and they'd come out and play football and whatever else we used to play. Uh, so we were often as seen as being a bit feral by people from outside, but we weren't. We were just free and safe. We just ran around and enjoyed ourselves, and we did all sorts of weird and wonderful things. We got it got a bit mad. We there was a a, a phase of lighting bonfires and in the rubbish dumps and making explosives out of bangers and all sorts of weird things. But basically pretty much we were, we felt safe enough to be risky. We weren't going to come to any harm. Uh, and on top of that, we had all the facilities around us. So the, the RAF gym was available to us so we could go and play football and five aside. And there was a swimming pool of in Oxfordshire. There was a big, outdoor swimming pool that we all went to the civilian kids were super jealous because they couldn't but they used to come in with us uh there was we had our own school so you were the school was on the base and so everyone knew everybody and we were all used to uh people coming and going because in the air force it's not like the army where the whole regiment moves in the air force the dads at the time it was only dads in those days it wasn't the women like it is now but they just got posted around and so you you'd be there and then one day dad would come home and say oh we're moving somewhere and you're off you'd go say goodbye to your friends if you were lucky you saw them again generally speaking you didn't sometimes you did but generally speaking you didn't but you went to the next place and it was the same and the houses were pretty much built the same you had your own school to go to uh, the mums all looked after you. The mums looked after each other as well, especially for the younger ones who, were find, who would obviously find it quite hard having been sent miles away from where they were brought up. Uh, the, the run of the base, in those days, we used to play war games, 1965, so it was only 20 years after the Second World War. We used to play war games on the base, in the bunkers that were used in the war, and there were bullet holes in the walls still where the the enemy had been shooting the place. So you, it was a fantastic place to be to have an imagination and to grow up. That being said, there was still domestic violence, alcoholism, all those things. You know, it wasn't totally idyllic. Uh, there was divorce and there was... And of course, in those days, if you got, if your parents got divorced, your mother was evicted immediately. That was it. Yeah. She was gone. She couldn't stay and live in the house. She was evicted and sent home onto the council list wherever she'd come from. So that that it was it wasn't it wasn't idyllic, but as as a kid, it was a great place to grow up. There was always a river nearby. I don't know why the air force bases have rivers nearby. It's, they all sort of worked out in one way. Uh, so we used to go out playing. So we I used to play in the Cotswolds at Bryce Norton or in the Yorkshire Dales or where, wherever we happen or in Pembrokeshire on the coast in Pembrokeshire, wherever we happened to be based. That that's where we used to kick around, and it was it was really quite good. Uh, so I was there any, job. yeah? Was there any periods abroad? Oh yeah, I spent time in, but well, very early. I went out at age three, I think. But we went out to Bahrain in the middle of the. There was a crisis at the time in Aden, so there was. Uh, that was a bit. That was a bit different. That was in. Uh, we lived in a flat block of flats, which was occupied solely by British military. And it was occupied mainly by paratroopers who were going off to wade and fighting over in the Radfan, and they'd go off and fight and come back and go off. And my dad didn't, but uh, 
they uh, when the when the dads were away, the locals used to come and give the wives and the children a hard time, uh, and try to get into the houses and all sorts of stuff. So that was, it's like you imagine if you it would be like now sending British families out to Iraq when their husbands yeah. were fighting in in somewhere. And that's but they did in those. It, it was in those days. It's what you did, and we we came. It, it was a it was weird to come. Uh, I remember when I came back from there, which was it was it was some dangerous times. Uh, when we came back, I came back to the Torrey Canyon, which was a uh, for those that don't know was a uh, an oil tanker disaster off Cornwall, which I remember vividly watching that on the telly, and also uh, Aberfan, the terrible disaster in Wales when the school was crushed by the uh, with the oh, children yeah, in it, cool. the thing, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, it actually was safer in Bahrain than it is back here. <laughs> it was a bit, it was a bit odd, you know. We would say, oh yeah, you've been back in Britain now; it'll be safe now. And then you're watching the news, and of course, there was stuff going on that, that wasn't safe. So that was my sort of early childhood, and uh, I ended up things didn't go well in our family, so I ended up sort of in care in a boarding school. The military paid for it, but nowadays I would have been put in care. But in those days. The military paid for me to go to a posh, but a very posh boarding school, which was, was what happened. Uh, unfortunately, my brother couldn't come with me because he couldn't pass all the entrance exams. Entrance exams, so he had to stay at home and put up with stuff. But uh, I, I went to this very posh boarding school, and then by the time I finished there, and when I finished my O levels, end of fifth form, whatever that's called now, year eleven, I think. Uh, Mum and yeah, mum was mum was divorced, had her own place in York, and we lived in York for a while, and we settled down there, which was very nice. And then I uh, joined the army, uh, which I loved, absolutely loved it, and I was I ended up in Belfast for a while, and that's when I really saw antisocial behaviour at its at its most extreme. It was incredible, absolutely incredible, the intimidation, the violence seeing four-year-old children running around a burning car, dancing around a burning car at two in the morning. I never forget that. Thinking, I remember looking at them thinking, you poor buggers, you know, what sort of life, your parents are egging you on. You know, the parents were all there egging these kids on. And uh, they, I, I, then, then I carried on and did my job, whatever. You know, that was, that was the thing. We did our work. Was that sort of the 80s? Yeah, 83. So what was your most scariest experience in Belfast? Uh, two attempted murders on me. How about that? <laughs> that was pretty, really? pretty pretty scary. But at the time, I wasn't scared. I was afterwards, but I wasn't at, I wasn't at the time. But it was it was weird. Uh, what happened? Well, we, I was I, I, I was in a, uh, a bomb disposal team. That was my job. And... Uh, we'd, we'd been out and we were basically ambushed in the city. We were put in a, in a place by the local police to do what we had to do, but they put bombs all around us and they all just went off around us. And uh, that was on a Friday night. And we, anyway, no one was hurt. It was all okay. Was a, you know, uh, but you, 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 felt, you, felt the, you felt the kiss of the explosion. It was very close. But anyway, we were all all right. Then in the morning, we, so we packed up and did whatever we had to do got back to base and put tis was on and watched that so that's what we used to be it was it was a, it was a <laughs> bit <awesome>. odd <laughs> so you're doing that and then you're watching tis was and eat, eating burgers it was just it was an odd time but anyway yeah so there was two attempts on us uh real serious attempts but they didn't get us and we, we lived to tell the tale so uh 
It was and a then, crazy place back then, wasn't it? Uh, it was. It was. Remar- it was. It was remarkable. I never. I always used to. It was always odd because every night there would be someone getting kneecapped or shot in the back or something, and it was nothing. We didn't have out to do with that. We had our own work to do. But it was. All, it always struck me that people, Irish people, were killing and maiming Irish people and blaming the British for it. It was always someone else's fault, you know, and the ones that did it. You know, and not all Irish people. We met some lovely Irish people over there, by the way. So don't get me wrong. You know, it was it was a there were some yeah. really nice people there uh, who who were very nice to us and brought us orange squash out and all sorts of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was it was a crazy time. Uh, and anyway, I, uh, when I came back from there, uh, I uh, I met a nurse, married her, <laughs> and. Uh, then she was in Cornwall and we came back to Cornwall and I joined the police. So that's sort of what happened there. So uh, I think I did 10 years in the army. Then I joined Devon Cornwall police in 88 or 89, something like that. Uh, and did patrol work, specialised in patrol work, basically. Uh, did a couple of years of uh, divisional training. Divisional training, obviously. Went, I went to Harrogate and did the trainers course. And came back and did divisional training. Did that for two years and got promoted on the back of that to sergeant. And uh, then, yeah, my promotion to sergeant was to St Ives. If you can imagine that, that's like oh, heartbeat, that's okay. like heartbeat in it. I was the sergeant. Yeah. There was another sergeant there, but he left, so there was just me for a while. Police sergeant in St Ives, which was a very busy place. Funnily enough, we were always busy. Uh, holiday makers and drugs was the thing in St Ives. There was no. No antisocial behaviour, but uh, not to speak of. And then after a spell there, I ended up in Camborne, which is where my sort of ASB story is. Uh, Camborne's a town in Cornwall. Most people have never heard of it. It's quite a big town, 20 or 30,000, which is big for Cornwall. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one of the most deprived places in the country, sort of like bottom 5%, bottom 2% for employment, I think and uh, bottom 3% for health outcomes for children and all that sort of, it really is right right at the very bottom. It used to be one of the most prosperous places in the world with tin mining and mining decline and nothing replaced it. You know, that was the end. And it was, uh, it was a ter- terrible, it's a terrible decline and post mining type town in terms of terrible outcomes for children and, uh, and, and what have you, poverty and stuff. So, uh, if you look at the poverty figures for Camborne, it's the same as any of the any of the sort of big places in London or anywhere else. Different problems. Not saying it's the same, but the the data is the same. You look at the same. You can recognise the data. You won't recognise the people. It's very different demographic and that sort of stuff. Ninety eight percent of the population are white, uh, which is interesting because whenever you try to put a grant application in, everyone says, "Well, what are you doing to attract to attract people from Bane communities?" Well. We're not because we can't, and then you don't get the grant. Uh, but so there's it's it's it, it, it's it got it's got its own uh, its own demographic. But anyone in the ASB world or the policing world from a disadvantaged town would recognise the data and would recognise the problems uh, and the scale and the scale. You know, maybe at a different scale. So I I watch your uh, your. LinkedIn posts and what have you and we don't have the serious stuff that you're dealing with or we didn't have anyway yeah. uh, but we have lots and lots and lots of the minor stuff which sort of adds up 
but you, you know, absolutely don't, don't get crack houses and you don't get really well you do get a bit but nothing nothing it is cornwall after all and cornwall is a nice place and it's a quiet place and uh so where when, when we let's give you an example when i was in uh in cambourne on my section we had a t- there was a period when we had a lot of transferry officers that had come down to finish their time policing in Cornwall, which was a nice thing to do, bring the family down, you know, sell their little house in London and buy a big house in Cornwall and all that. And I never forget, we had this guy from the Mets, who I'm still in touch with, and uh, I said, oh, I'll show you, around the, show you around the whole patch and I'll show you the rough estates and all the rest of it. So I showed him around the whole patch, it took half a day because it's quite, quite a big patch. And uh, at the end of it, he said, well, are you going to show me the rough estates? And he wasn't being funny. And I said, well, I have. And he said, oh, well, there's no rough estates here, mate. He said, I'm just not, where, not like where I've just come from. <laughs> <laughs> so he was quite happy, you know. But to us, it was to us, it was where the problems were, you know, uh, that, that had to be dealt with one way or another. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely a brief. A, yeah. A brief, a brief history of my sort of life and career. Yeah. <laughs> So where did the where did the neighbourhood sort of um, community policing come in during your career? Then what sort of time did that come okay. in? Okay, right. So I think I got promoted in I don't know when I got nineteen ninety eight, I think, and I went to St Ives for two years to so two thousand. Then up to two thousand and two, two thousand and three, I was Camborne patrol sergeant, one of five Camborne patrol sergeants. When you put out a sergeant and ten. That's all gone now. They're lucky to get Sergeant One if they're lucky now. But that's what, yeah. Absolutely. So, so I was one of the Camborne Patrol Sergeants, and we were just there was no neighbourhood policing hadn't been invented. It wasn't a thing. Yeah, uh, there was quality of life logs if you go back that far. But they, if they did that in your your area, but the neighbourhood policing hadn't been invented, and then they uh, they came up with this idea of neighbourhood policing, and it was it was. I just looked at it and I thought, I quite like that, you know. And the thing is that when I joined Devon and Cornwall Police, well, before I joined Devon and Cornwall Police, I remember driving down to Plymouth from my army base and going over the bridge at Plymouth and on the side of the police car that was going the other way, it said Devon and Cornwall Community Constabulary. And we had a a very forward, there was a very forward-thinking chief constable then called John Alderson, I think. He's, He's passed away now. And he was into all this community policing and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, he left and then a new one, John Evans, turned up who wasn't. And uh, they took up the strap line off the side of the cars. And we were no longer the Devon and Cornwall Community Constabulary. We became the Devon and Cornwall Police. That's, that was the change. So by the time I became, by the time community, neighbourhood policing had been reintroduced, I think it was by Blair's government, I think, wasn't it? Uh, the problem, yeah. yeah, the problem with it was there's no one knew how to do it. <laughs> there was no one, to, no one to ask. They'd all gone, uh, retired or whatever. You know, there were very few people left who knew about community policing. Anyway, I looked at it and I and for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, based on, I mean, done policing in St Ives in Cornwall, which is like a beautiful holiday place, and then moved to Camborne. I could see, and and because of my experience living on those military bases where the community spirit was really strong and I could see the benefits of it. And also we had a, we I didn't say this at the time, we had a military policeman living in the, in the, in the RAF beer. 
and everyone hated him because he, he would he would he would bother you or he would bother you. But yeah, we had the military policeman who would come around and all that sort of stuff and tell us all off if we were in trouble. Uh, so I just it it just struck me as being a good idea at the time when it all came out. I thought well, I quite like the sound of that. So anyway, I volunteered for. I put my name down. They said that they had a big talk. The chief constable came down, and we had a big talk from the local, from the BCU. wasn't called a BCU then, but from the BCU commander, divisional commander, or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought more and more. I quite fancied this, so I put my name down for it, and I was the only one. Everyone said that's a cushy job. That's an easy job. You know, you don't want to be doing that. You're going to be, be doing proper policing, yeah, Dave. Right. You know. Yeah. And to be to be to be fair, if I. If I say so myself, I was pretty good at the proper policing. As a, you know, my section had an eighty percent detection rate of whatever it touched. You know, we got people in and we got them detected and we got them to court. And there was a time when my actual section was uh, carrying the figures for my section was carrying the station because we really carrying got, the others. Yeah, we really yeah. got into it, and I loved doing that. Uh, but I was getting a sense that it wasn't making any difference. I was getting a sense that doing, you know, getting loads of convictions and uh, I forget the terminology now, uh, whatever the word is for a closed file, but getting all that done, yeah, uh, wasn't actually changing much. We just got more of it. I got, I was getting a sense of it, but I hadn't realised it then. So anyway, I got into neighbourhood policing and it was, uh, it was an interesting time because there was an awful lot going on at once. So we started neighbourhood policing and there was me and three neighbourhood beat managers. So... What they what they did at the same time was they aligned policing with the local authority, which sounds like which makes seems to make sense, and it would if the local authority were good. But I'll say it now that they weren't. It was bad. It was there was a, there was a problem with it. So we were aligned with the local authority. Uh, so they changed all our borders, and so they made the neighbourhood beat managers work within the local authority borders. So, so right. that's, that's how that's how they did it, yeah. And uh, to give you an in count, so the way it was set up, and this is quite important actually, is that Camborne is a town, and next to it is a town called Red Ruth. And if you don't know the geography, you would go if you went to Cornwall, you'd drive right past both of them. You wouldn't stop, yeah. You drive right past both of them. So Camborne and Red Ruth had the same were in the same district council boundary of called Kerrier. So it had the same police inspector, had the same district council, had the same medical people. Everything was the same between Camborne and Red Ruth. Yeah, what was different was I had a neighbourhood team and somebody else had a neighbourhood team in Red in Red Ruth. Uh, that was the only real real difference. So I set up with my three beat managers, and we uh, we very quickly found that the the, the patrol teams thought anything that was basically community related we had to do and they just used to try and pass us the logs all the time and we and I was I was having to fight them off and say look that isn't what we're here for but we didn't really know what we were there for but we knew what we weren't there for so there was a little bit of tension going on there and uh we found very quickly that there was one estate where we were not welcome and it wasn't like no go you could go but no one would talk to you <laughs> you know you could walk around as much as you yeah, wanted very no very one. moody yeah, very yeah. moody, very yeah. moody. Yeah, no one would talk to you. And then at the uh, just a bit after that, they introduced the police community support officers, which for us was an absolute godsend because I got five. 
And so I had three beat managers, five PCSOs who were local, went to the same school as the as the kids in the town. They were all lo local or localish, yeah. Uh, and that was a real godsend because then we started to get unprecedented access to this place because people knew them, and they could say, "Well, I went to the same school as your kids, I know, you know, whatever." And they, they actually lived in the set. They lived in their beats. Some of them did, which was a very, very interesting. Rare for police officers to do that. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so what started to happen was one of the beat managers who was uh, very well known in the community because a bit of a bit of a sportsman he got access into somebody's house got chat into someone's house for tea and coffee and cakes and uh in this estate called park and tansies it's called and that became the beginnings of our actually working in the neighborhood because people because he was in the house and, t and talking and we started to find out what the problems were on the estate and it was they, they kept talking about intimidation. Now, because we're the police and we had police ears on, we were thinking about victim intimidation or witness intimidation and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't. What it was was intimidation on the fact that at the time some tenants, it was a big sort of housing estate, some tenants were subletting their houses, which of course is a thing now, isn't it? Because they got told they had to later on. But back in the day, you weren't allowed to. And also there was a lot, quite a lot of benefit fraud going on and things like that. Mm -hmm. So the intimidation was you better not tell anyone about my benefit fraud or the fact that I'm subletting or that I'm doing this or I'm doing that or whatever. Uh, and there was some pretty, there, the intimidation was quite violent. There was violent intimidation going on, we're told. Never got reported because they never spoke to us. Uh, yeah. And so we were dealing with that. Yeah, we were dealing with that. And then, the other problem at the time in the town was extraordinary levels of youth antisocial behaviour. Now, it's low level. They weren't setting fire to places. It wasn't like crime as such, but it was big gangs of kids, like 20 or 30 strong, sort of rampaging around the town, getting up to no good, upsetting the old people. All, all that sort of stuff, hanging around and with nothing to do, drink, getting 12-year-olds getting absolutely drunk. And another thing we found was legislation's changed now, but we would find them drinking, seize their alcohol, bring it back to the police station. Next day, mum would come and say, give me my alcohol back. Yeah. Because we had to, because it was their property. I know that's changed now, but back in the... Yeah, yeah. And they would, give it, they would give it to the kids. So what they were doing was giving that, getting the kids here's your alcohol, go out and play whilst mum and dad can play indoors type stuff. That was sort of what was going on. And so yeah, yeah you had a, all the problems that came with that, quite a bit of criminal damage. So it would escalate into a bit of crime, like criminal damage, smashing up a, you know, a, a sports pavilion or something like that and, and things like that. And it became uh, the focus of everybody, all the, the, the town council who actually became great friends were uh, of the police and personally as well. They wanted it sorted out because it was their town and they're very proud of their town and the mining heritage and all that sort of stuff. The district council were getting heavily involved because they'd just taken on their antisocial behaviour team and they felt that it was their job to sort it, uh, which was a problem. 
because they didn't know how and they didn't know about the rules of evidence and there's a whole load of stuff they didn't know but someone had a phd in antisocial behavior which he kept telling us which so you can imagine the tensions and the stuff the stuff going on there i bet that was really really tense oh yeah yeah and get him out i used to have them in the police station and show and before uh when you were allowed to exchange data and i'd say come on to the police station and let's talk about what we're doing but uh what they started doing, what I discovered was their performance indicator was the level, the number of level one, two, and three ASB letters they'd sent out. So they just sent lots of letters out and and basically criminal put people into the. They said, "Oh, we're not criminalising them." I said, "You are, because they've now got a police nominal number. You are. You're putting them into the system, and they'll never escape." And so, you know, as it happens for those poor young people, many years down the line, when they're applying for a job that requires a a CRB check, it pops up, doesn't it? It's it's there. It doesn't go away. So anyway, yeah, they were... That's that's, that's not the right way to approach it at all. No, no, we we learned that very quickly. Well, we weren't doing it that way. And most of the the team we had had children. They didn't want to be involved in all that. But that's what what they were doing. And it, it, again, caused tensions. So we were trying to reduce the problem and they were it seems they wanted the problem to be bigger to justify their existence so they just and and we the police had to give out the letters there was a system which i was basically imposed on it so the police were giving out the letters they were writing them and oh it was it was it wasn't good and you can see you can see how it was all going up anyway it ended up with uh the uh town council some members of the town council decided they wanted to hold a meeting to have a vote on uh vote of no confidence in the local policing which was quite serious stuff because of the youth antisocial behavior yeah which i can tell you is nothing like you would get in one of the big cities but to them it was a big deal yeah and yeah luckily the mayor he's, he's died now poor old john he's died now but the mayor said, no, we're not going to do that, but we will hold a meeting. So what we did was we held, they held a, a question time type panel. So there was me, I ended up in there. And uh, our local MP, uh, who was most unhelpful, uh, and a few other sort of local worthies, and people were asking us questions. And I just gave them, when they asked me a question, I, I'm one of these people that I don't have an edit function. So if you ask me something, the first thing that comes into my head is the truth, and that's what I'll tell you. <laughs> so that's what I did. And the local MP was furious because at the time they were telling everyone there were more police. And I said, well, there aren't. Not not on my duty state board. There's no more police. You know, and anyway, she, she complained to the chief constable who complained to the chief superintendent who got me in his office for an hour and a half and told me what I should have said. So I listened to that and then didn't take any notice because I wasn't prepared to tell the public what that we were on top of it when we weren't anyway so i was exactly the, i was exactly yeah. the same david you know when i was a sergeant if i was asked questions again i would give the honest answer because there's no point sugarcoating it you've got to because yeah. t- ultimately you're the one at the sharp end that's got to make a difference and got to change those people's lives so be honest yeah that's it and it's always about you always get found out if you're not i mean there was one I was, for example, they were saying, I was, uh, they were saying there's loads of police cars outside the police station, but they don't ever move. And the superintendent would tell them in the meeting, yeah, that's because they're visiting custody. 
because there was a custody suite. We were a designated station as well. And he said, and and the locals could see they were covered in leaves. They weren't moving because <laughs> there weren't the officers, and there was more cars than there were coppers. And when I first started, the, 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 yeah, the when I first started, everyone would come come into briefing, and they'd wonder if they were going to be one of the two or three that got put out on foot patrol, you know, hoping to get in the car if it was cold. By the time two years later came, I no remember those days. I remember those days well. <laughs> yeah, no one went out. They all went out in a car. They went single crewed in cars because that's what you had to do. Anyway, so we had this meeting, and uh, an MP, no, not an, a lady who was a prospective MP, came up to me at the end of it and said, "I'm the prospective Liberal Democrat MP. If I get in, we'll talk." And she, as it, as it happened, she was called Julia Goldsworthy, and she did, and she was great. And uh, some other people got chatting to us, and they they appreciated the honesty. That was the thing, yeah. And they were able to ask because I had my PCSOs in there. They were able to ask them, "Is, he, is that right?" And they said, "Oh, yeah, that's right," you know. And they knew them by first names and all that sort of stuff. And so, uh, the the outcome of the meeting was that the mayor decided he would have a mayor's antisocial behaviour forum. So that's the town council mayor. He would have this forum, get people in together, and uh, he would work out a solution. Anyway, at that same time, all this is going on at once, we were having to arrest, lo we were arresting kids, which I don't like, do never like doing anyway. I had my own, you know, didn't, didn't seem right. Getting told we should be arresting more children by our local MP and others, you know, arrest them, get them locked up, lock the, lock the little buggers up, then they won't be causing trouble and all this sort of stuff. And I, and I realised that, now I did realise then, the more we did, the worse it got. The more we arrested, locked them up, got, got them into the criminal justice system or whatever it was, the worse the situation was going to get. We could see it happening. You yeah. could just see it. We had, we had women... I had two women police officers. I do not, not like to call them that anymore now, are you? But they were. And they were fighting with drunken kids in a park, trying to arrest them. You know, I mean, it's just, it was just not right. It, should, it wasn't right. No. And uh, no, anyway, no. so we had the first mayor's antisocial behaviour meeting. And I, I went to it. The mayor was there, the few other people from the council, and a guy called Tim, who owned a local nightclub. And he'd just bought it. And it was an. an Cornwall's full of big old granite buildings, three or four stories high, and you have this great big building. He said, I'm opening a nightclub. He said, I've got loads of space. We don't use it in the daytime. If you want to use it for anything that's really good, come and see me. So I sort of noted it and thought no more of it. And I was trying to work out a way of how we could get to know, get to work with the children. We did loads of things. So I had the PCSOs uh, doing truancy. So the PCSOs were returning truants to school. And the first mistake we made was to publish how many truants we'd returned. So in one month, we returned 110 truants. School went nuts because they'd only reported 10 to Ofsted. And that was because the, that was because the kids had, in those days, a swipe card. So they'd swipe in, leave, come back at the end of the day and swipe out. So anyway, but the school were very good. And they said, look, we're not going to fall out over this. Why don't you come to our school truancy meetings? Just come into the meetings. That got the PCSOs, not the beat manager, PCSOs, into the schools every day. So we yeah. were outside the school and into the school, walking around, 
there was a drug problem in the school which we managed to deal deal with so what happened was the drug supplier when it's the school indoors at when the bells rang there was a one-way system around the school where the kids had to go around the one way so they weren't all crashing into each other so the drug dealer was an ex-school kid and he worked out that if you walk the other, walked against the flow of traffic he could do all his deals so as he was going through so uh he's he we got we worked it all out. Got wind. This is before CCTV in schools and all that. It wasn't anything like that in those days. No technology as such. And uh, we caught him in the school, trapped him in, dealt with it. The school loved it because we dealt, you know. And it wasn't luckily. It wasn't a pupil. No pupils were found in possession, which was even better, you know. So we got on well with the school after that, and. Uh, it got to the point where the school was saying. We expect to see the police in the school, not not to see them. And it wasn't, and the kids used to think there must be a problem in the school if the police were there. And now it wasn't. There'd be a problem if they weren't there. They'd wonder where we were. And they got to know our names and they were calling us by our names as we walked through. And when we were driving around in a police car, they would look up at the car, see who was in. And if it was one of us, they'd wave. And if it was one of the ordinary patrol officers, they didn't bother because they didn't know who they were. So we had this meeting and then. I happened to be in my local village pub, which is just outside Campbell, and uh, met this guy who is the nephew of a friend of mine. It just so happens he's the, or was, or he is, he's the ex second world's second in the world breakdance and European breakdance champion. And he's taught Beyonce to dance and all sorts of stuff like that. And he's from Oldham. He's called Danny Price. You can look him up. He's called Danny Price. You can look him up. Anyway, we're in the pub just talking, and it's most unlikely he's a a black Afro-Caribbean Jamaican guy from Oldham. He'd never talked to a white copper. And for some reason, we did. We, we just did. I don't know why. And he was. I was telling him about what the problems were in camp. And he said, same in Oldham, mate. <laughs> it's just the same. Like I said at the beginning, <laughs> same data, same stuff, yeah. different scale. It's just the same. And so we came up yeah, with this absolutely. really mad, stupid, crazy idea. Let's set up a dance workshops in Campbell for all these kids. We'll just do it. Let's see if we can do it. So I had to do it, and he he was the dance teacher. And so I went back to the owner of the nightclub, and I said, "You remember you said that we could use your nightclub? Here's the plan. Can we do it?" And he said, "Yeah, but the nightclub's not built yet. But if you if you do it after I've completed, you know, the inside, you can." So we managed to get Danny down. We got the, uh, the nightclub. He's owned lots of nightclubs. This guy Tim Vigus, he's called. He gave us his graphic designer who printed flyers. We put 30 flyers in every register in the school. So there's 30 classrooms of 30, whatever that number was. Plus every child that came out of the school was offered a flyer, dance workshop, free dance workshop. So they all knew about it. And then Danny came down two days before and we went around the estates. He danced in the streets and said, if you want to do this, turn up. So... We didn't know who was going to come, how many were in the nightclub, a team of nine police officers in, in full uniform at the time, it has to be said. And uh, the queues were down the street of kids wanting to come in. And, it, and, it, and there's one story of this lady, I still know, she's called Rochelle. And uh, she turned up and said, it's always the same. And, she, and her daughter was screaming as her mum was trying to drag her out. She said, it's always the same. Whenever something happens in Campbell and there's always trouble, look, there's police everywhere. Of course, we were because we were running it. <laughs> so I said to her, "Look, it's, it's it's all right. It's okay. We're running it." She said, "Oh, that's all right then." So anyway, the, her daughter came in, 
daughter Shamila came in and uh, became, stayed in forever. Shamila did until she grew up. And uh, so we did this first dance workshop, great success. The next day there was a, it was two hundred people came on the first hundred kids the first day, then one hundred and twenty kids the second day, and uh, we knew we had something going. And then we said, "Well, we'll do it again." That was half term in October two thousand and either four or five, I can't remember, one of the two. And then we said, "Oh well, we'll do that again." So we did it for Christmas, and we did, and we got invited in the between then and Christmas. We did the uh, got invited up to London to do the. NHS live conference in front of the Secretary of State for Health and did a performance in the Excel Centre, uh, which was filmed and all the rest of it. 101 kids on a bus, and that was an, on two buses. That was interesting because we took the so we took the youth services with us, who were hopeless. They kept letting them smoke, and we couldn't. The police we couldn't let them do that. So there was a bit of a problem there. And we got told by the and after, later by the youth services, they said you you can't other youth services and the social services because lots of the kids were in care you can't do that you're not professional youth workers and all this sort of stuff then when we did it they said you shouldn't have done that you know we had them we had 101 kids on the london eye going up a boat in the river all paid for six thousand quid came in to pay for this london trip through our new mp the liberal democrat mp who got them into the houses of parliament as well to show them around and got the houses of parliament education team on it so it's a big experience and you if you go around the town now and someone says, oh, because I still do this dance thing, TR14 as it's called, you still get uh, kids will say, yeah, I went to London. I'm one of the 101 that went to London. They still say it. And of course, they remember it because it was yeah. so so memorable. Yeah, big thing. And they're parents now. And, they got and what, their own what did that and... do? What did that do to ASB in that area, David? Did it, did it make a massive difference? This is the thing. Imagine that this is happening every half term, so every school holiday and every half term, and then it started to happen every every week as well. Straight away, youth ASB went right down. It was noticed mm. straight away that daytime youth shoplifting went to zero because it was a big deal. They were skiving off school and nicking Mars bars and nicking their lunches and stuff. That went down to zero. The whole ASB thing changed and what changed was we were then able to find the bad guys because they weren't surrounded by loads of just naughty kids so we were able to concentrate we still do our police work but a lot of what the kids were doing was saying well i can either do that or that what am i going to do i'll do the dance and i've got tapes of them saying they all became quite famous was on radio cornwall and bbc and stuff kids saying well i thought if i got in trouble the police wouldn't let me in actually we wouldn't have stopped them going in but they assumed that we would have stopped them going in so the asb went through went down to almost zero for youth asb and that's an absolute fact and what we also noticed was these children's parents started to speak to us because they had a thing to talk to us about now, what little Johnny had been doing. They could say, oh yeah, little Johnny was at the dance and he's done this and he's done that. The teachers had something else to talk about. Their big brothers and big sisters had something to talk to us about. They didn't have it, there was nothing to... What I realized was that we, the, one of the reasons no one spoke to us was we had nothing to say. <laughs> there was nothing to say yeah. at all. You know, and uh, but now there was. So when we did, we did it with Hazel C two group and stuff. We did community uh, 
listening sessions and stuff in the in with barbecues and all the rest of it and uh, when, when we did that we people came out and just talked and said hello and they knew our names and we knew their names and hey and they gave us intelligence you know because they could trust us now they could they could speak to us all the things they really wanted to tell us but couldn't before now they could they could walk up to us or speak to us quietly or whatever uh, doctor's surgery turned to be a place where we could speak with them. Doctor, we used to go in doctor's surgery because there was a there was another ASB problem there because we had a bail hostel up the road for the sex offenders, and they used to go into this doctor's surgery. So we used to go in the doctor's surgery when they when they had an appointment in there because there was mainly it was one woman doctor and two nurses and whatever else. Yeah, so we we used to go in there, but then. The people realise, ah, oh, if I need to catch the police and not go in the police station, I can go in the doctor's surgery. So we sort of started started doing all that. Uh, actually, incidentally, later on, so I we I did that for I lose track of time now uh, till about twenty two thousand and nine, I think. Anyway, I got ill with with the stress, which I'll tell you about later. The things that didn't work well, and ended up working in as a uh, youth issues manager in Cornwall Council which was a good job and uh, the police every, everyone had changed new team and all that and I've gone other people had gone new chief inspector all that stuff and uh, they put out that violence outside the nightclubs antisocial behavior was gone down to zero and they basically claimed the credit for it but what they hadn't realized was that our 14 and 15 year olds had become 18 and they weren't doing that they were going to the pubs but they weren't fighting the police but we never got we never got credit for that and it had a, a long term i'm still doing the dance thing i left the police years 10 years ago now still doing it and these people have grown up and got children and bring their children just going to take a break from the podcast to showcase an excellent product from our main sponsor rhe global it's called Reams Community Safety. It covers all your ASB case management needs, plus up-to-date community safety processes and supporting documents. Store all your community safety content in one place. Local edits can also be made so you can customise it for your own organisation. Avoid expensive court costs by ensuring that you have the most up-to-date case law and keynote webinars to support with all the documents. Some of the topics to be covered will be the injunction, closure powers, community trigger, community protection notice, amongst a host of others. To obtain more information, you can contact the team via the website www.reams.org or email sales at rheglobal.com. I hope you're enjoying the Community Safety Podcast. If so, please rate, subscribe and leave a five-star review. This really helps to spread our message. Can I ask you a quick question about, about that type of work? Did you find at that time, I totally get what you're doing and mm. I've done it myself. Yeah. But the question I wanted to ask you was, did you get criticism from your fellow officers that you were not doing what you should be doing and should have been should be out on the streets catching the baddies? Not the fellow officers. They could all see it. Local councillors, the antisocial behaviour team, uh, some local, the town council had changed over, new mayor now. She wrote a letter, the new mayor wrote, whose son was a police officer, funnily enough, but wrote a letter in the local paper saying the police should get back to traditional 
policing and stop doing all this stuff with the kids. They should be out there arresting them, not being in the dance floor with them. And I wrote back that my grandfather was a police officer and he used to play football with kids. You know, that is traditional policing if you can find a way to do it. And uh, the, the antisocial behaviour team didn't like it because uh, it was they didn't get they couldn't write the letters anymore because the kids weren't doing it. The community safety team from the local authority, once we became a unitary authority and that all that lot yeah. left, they, we became a unitary authority then, the new community safety team didn't like it. So when I ended up working in Cornwall Council as the police youth intervention manager, advising the Children's Trust on police policing issues and all that sort of stuff, even though I had a superintendent, I was like sort of the guy in the support team, if you like. Uh, I never once, I tried to, but I could not speak with the community safety team. They would not speak to me. And one of the, and they had a police inspector in there. Wouldn't speak. I had a meeting once. And they didn't oh, make bizarre. it. It was it was absolutely bizarre. And all we were doing was doing good, in one way or another. And there were a lot of people said we shouldn't be doing we shouldn't be doing it that way. They liked the results because they could put the results in the paper. But they said we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing it that way. And the key thing was we got as well as reducing the antisocial behaviour. As I say, we got hard intelligence. Soft intelligence, you know, basic community stuff, and some really hard yeah, intelligence. Definitely. You know, people would talk to you, and also the kids weren't being criminalised. You know, and the other thing, which is a big, which is a big yeah, thing, it is, and the girls weren't being assaulted. Is another thing, yeah, yeah, because they weren't getting. I they did, weren't um, all the I did drunken groups. Yeah, I did the radio projects when I was in the police. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, we went out, asked kids what they wanted to do, um, because I think sometimes a lot of it is focused on sport. And what what we realised was a lot of kids they're not really always into sport. There's mm -hmm. a large the number that are, but not everybody. Um, and we realised that music and radio was what they wanted to do. Yeah. So we again, like you, set you know found premises, set up a project, and gave them what they wanted. And again, the impact on crime, ASB. Uh, and all that associated stuff just plummeted, you yeah. know. And we, unfortunately, the the funding ran out, and um, we couldn't get any more funding. Yeah. Uh, but we were training a hundred kids a week, you know, and and having mm. some absolute brilliant results. You do, don't you? I mean, at the same time as this dance stuff was going on, we were working with the local NHS, the public health people, and they had a scheme called LEAP, the Local Exercise Action Pilot. And basically what they were doing was they had these sort of sports health people, lovely, really cracking team. They're still, they're still around doing stuff. And they would go out to communities and training and setting up sports, you know, sport outdoor street games, sort of football, street hockey, and that sort of stuff, with the idea that the parents would take it over. But of course the parents didn't. But the police did. We joined in with them. So we set up three football teams. And what we found was a lot of the kids in these estates didn't want to be in the FA uh, setup. There was every little area in Camborne's got its own little FA football club. They didn't want to be in yeah. that. They wanted to be in their own thing. So we we did that, and we got them football strips, and they played matches, and for the ones that wanted to. And we also, I was dead fortunate. Three my three beat managers were triathletes, 
so we did triathlete training with them that was a bit different they could do swimming and running and all the rest all the rest of it and we did the dance uh so all that was sort of happening at once and then we we found in this one estate which is outside of Campbell and it has a some rough a rough bit of rough ground and we spoke to the old people on the estate and they said oh yeah well that used to be an allotment and we used to grow vegetables in in that in there anyway i don't i can't really remember how i got about it but it was a lot of help of the town council and the police team worked all of us worked with the local people for two weeks and we cleared this piece of land it had we found three or four tons of rubbish in it which we got someone to take away for free uh we uh found fridges full of dead fish it was manking it was really horrible anyway we cleared this out it was rat infested so there there were rats running into Mm. people's houses and the local authority carrier district council told us that people had to there's no budget for rats and people had to pay to have the rats removed but the rats didn't live in their house the rats ran in they were in in the thing and we we told the local uh mp and the local councillors and they were furious and they made the district council clear up the rats we cleared the whole land. We There was a man on the estate who was a JCB driver, so I spoke with him. He managed. We spoke to his boss who gave him the JCB for two days and said, you can borrow that JCB for two days. I knew a guy who worked in a quarry who gave us, because we asked, we asked we, the kids said they wanted BMX jumps for their bikes. And I asked the local authority, Kerry District Council, they said, we can sell you a tonne of soil a ton is nothing it's nothing so mm. i spoke to my mate who runs a quarry and he said david says there's a building site they've got a whole load of topsoil they want to get rid of and they're going to dump it because they you know, legally would dump it on that field if you like so they turned up we had uh, four or five trucks 80 tons of Gosh. soil turned up and then the guy with the jcb jcb did all for us into into jumps and runs then i went to the local uh, seed merchants got grass seed and got a guy with a, a, a horse to spread to plow the land and then to put the uh, rake the land and then sow the seed. Then we got the fire brigade in. Now, of course, the kids are happy now. The fire brigade are in. Fire brigade came to water the seeds because it was bone dry and nothing was germinating. They couldn't use their main hose because if they had, the local authority would have known that they were using the main hose and they'd have been billed because there wasn't a fire. So they had to use a small hose. They hosed the whole place down. The kids got on the fire engines and, it, and the, in the police cars. Absolutely brilliant. You can imagine the community contact with the police, the fire service and everyone yeah. else. ASB in that estate. That was where we did the football when it disappeared. There wasn't any ASB in that state. The grass grew. We've got films of the kids on the BMX jumps, and then there was a we we'd done a mining a mining survey. There was no mine shaft detected, but on the map on the survey, but JCB had disturbed a 16th century or 17th century tin mine, and it collapsed. So they put a fence around it and capped it. When they did that. They leveled, this is the same district council, they leveled the whole land and let the weeds grow. Right. The whole thing was just, yeah. Mm. And we actually discovered a building in there that, and an old lady said, that's where we used to exchange the vegetables in that building. Everyone would grow their vegetables and put what they didn't want in there and then everyone would swap them. 
swap um, them over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all that community stuff, we brought all that back. And what it was, they wanted it for houses. Or, but they didn't want it for houses. They wanted to make it so that it could be saved for houses. So if it got turned into something, then it could change of use. So it was a, it was horrible, really. Anyway, that I've got the pictures of the before, after, and the after. Yeah, and that that again was the local authority pushing against the police doing stuff which reduced antisocial behaviour. Uh, mm, so what? It's a shame. What? It is a shame. It is, and you know, it's a long time ago. That district, that local authority is gone. Some of the people are still around, but I don't have out to do with them. But the what I learned was that the antisocial behaviour team has a place, especially for serious antisocial behaviour. You know, it hit them hard. These ones that are causing misery for families and all that. You know, get in there and get. You know, I've just realised what I was going to say. But you can also do social behaviour. You can also put stuff in, as you were saying with your radio, you can put stuff in place. Because antisocial, low, I think, low-level antisocial behaviour is social behaviour. It's just wrong. They're doing it the wrong way. The kids are doing it They're doing it wrong, aren't they? They're, they're mixing, they're socialising, but to, to, yeah. bad, yeah. to bad effect. They're, they're really. socialising, but they're, mm. because they're bored and they've got nothing really to do, yeah. they turn that boredom into fun for them at that point but actually if you can if you can substitute that yeah. unruly behavior with proper programs activities then in my experience they'll channel those acti- that energy and yeah. that misbehavior into good behavior they will and do you remember i said at the beginning there's two towns camborne and red ruth well there's a reason why i mentioned yeah. that so the two towns same police inspector my police the first police inspector of neighborhood policing was brilliant he, and of course he had to, he left they moved him on he was absolutely brilliant and they brought someone else in who had a, other ideas but uh if you compare the two towns at the time red ruth had no end of asbs on young people now if you have to forgive me, it's a long time ago. Uh, dispersal orders, they were called. I don't know if you still do dispersal yes. orders. Yeah, so they had dispersal orders. Yeah, they're, they had, not, they're, they're, diff- they're different now, but yeah. Yeah, but they had them, yeah. They, the, I mean, local authority had those machines that they put in uh, bus stops to ring in the kids' ears that only the kids can hear to stop the kids' congregating. Oh, the, um, yeah, yeah. It's it kind of puts out a frequency. Something. Yeah, yeah, they had yeah, all that, which I think right, is... Yeah. So they were torturing the kids, basically. If the kids congregated, they were going to be tortured by high-frequency sound, which was all a bit... Yeah, they've, stopped using, they've stopped using those. Yeah, so they should, yeah. But they were doing it. And the other thing they had was something that made international news, a thing called Operation Goodnight. And I and my colleague over the other side of the town, he put it in place. And basically, any child that was out after 10 at night got took home or sent told to go home. It was basically dressed up as a... Uh, a non-enforceable curfew type thing. So they had all these things going on. Of course, the problem the problem with what that was was they didn't they hadn't taken into account why the kids were out and why they didn't want to be in the house. <laughs> so they were putting them back at in the under, underlying reasons. Yeah, they didn't take. Yeah. But anyway, the thing is, is that they had all those things going on in Red Ruth, and we had none of them. Not one. Not one youth ASBO, few letters, uh, not one, only one. I think we got to a point in that period, I had 700 different children had been into the dance 
and because it was the police and because GDPR had been invented and all that, we could track them against our nominal system at the time, the Devon and Cornwall one, the, not the national one, but the Devon and Cornwall one. And we could yeah. see who we could see who was reoffending. We had one Nick in a Mars bar. That was it. No more reoffending. Nothing of of, of those. I had seven the same, David. Kids. Yeah, and it's you know I had exactly the same. I yeah. put a, I put a number of kids on ABCs, but we did yeah, come back to what you were saying earlier. We did proper intensive work with them. Um, we got to know the parents. We got to know the siblings. Yeah, and we never took one to we never took one to enforcement. We never yeah. took one to an injunction or anything like that. Yeah. And I'm really proud of that work, you know. And ASB, yeah, like you're saying, plummeted. Yeah, because you know, because we does, put the time it? and effort in. Yeah, and at the same time, you can concentrate on the bad guys. When you're doing that, it's easier to see them, isn't it? They become more visible. Absolutely, you can, you can spot them, and also you get the intelligence comes in. You know, well, I'll tell you where they're going to be, where their crack house is, or whatever it is they're doing. In our case, it was gambling with children, getting kids in, and doing gambling, and having their pocket money was what was what was going on. Getting the kids drunk and then gambling. But yeah, so and we and the other thing we learned as well was by working with the local housing associations that some of a lot of these people didn't give a monkey's about what the police were going to do to them, but if they thought they were going to lose their house, they lose, lose their benefits. House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've always said that, you know. I've always yeah. said that. I'm not. I'm not a big lover of eviction. I'll be honest no. with you. But what I always used to find, and obviously I still work in housing now, is that mm. um, they they don't mind getting nicked. That's an occupational hazard, but they don't want to lose their houses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah. I tell you what. I, I just remind me of a funny story. We were walking around this estate that I was telling you about, Parking Tandy's. Me and this guy from the Mets. And they, he had a different, just a different approach. He'd come from the, the hard end of the metro. Some, I, I he, t he did tell me, but I've forgotten the name of the area that he was working in. But it was one, it was a busy area, you know. And uh, we were walking around this estate and someone just came out of the door and started shouting and swearing at him, at us. And I was going to walk to him in my Devon and Cornwall way and, you know, talk him down and say, what's the problem and all that. Not the Mets guy, he just walked up and wrote him out a ticket for disorderly behaviour and said, there you go. <laughs> so that was his 80 quid fine. Then he had to go in and tell his wife that it was benefits day and he just had to pay an £80 fine. That was his punishment and that worked quite well. But yeah. the same the same copper had a whistle. He insisted on wearing a whistle because he was from the Mets and that was the last sort of vestige of his from Metropolitan Met, yeah. Police in days. Yeah. So... He used to walk around on patrol, and whenever he, because of all the street games we've do, been doing, they all knew him. And so, whenever he found any kids playing football, he got his whistle out and refereed for 10 minutes. So, he was what I'm saying is, I mean, okay, giving out a fixed penalty ticket isn't hard police work, but what I'm saying is, you can do both. You can get yeah. in there and deal with the people that are shouting. And he was shouting and swearing because he was trying to be the king of the, you know, the, the king of the pond in, on his estate was what he was trying to do and let everyone see that he could shout at the police and all that stuff. So he could be dealt with. And at the same time, you could play with the kids and also de deal with the drug dealers who, because what was going on was the, in Cornwall, the, the local housing people had a really bad habit of building big estates, but not putting the green space in, but only in small squares. So the kids congregated in small areas to play football and just kick about and stuff, which is, of course, any drug dealer worth their salt would go straight to those places where the kids congregate. But because the police yeah, were going there playing football with them or handball or whatever it was with their whistle, with his whistle, that 
came, we got sorted that out. We might just have diverted it, moved it away, but at least it wasn't public anymore, you know. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So you, David, I want to ask you a question because we we've been believe it or not, we've been going an hour. And, I know. Um, I just saw that. I, I know. This question in in, yeah. <laughs> in terms of yeah. you know we we you've talked about some fantastic stuff, but I do feel that some of this has dropped off in the recent years because of the cuts and because of the way neighbourhood policing has gone. I know there's an obvious answer in terms of you know getting more competent police on the streets. But what else do you think we need to do to get some some of these communities back on track in terms of the way that you've done it, the way that I've done it? How do you think we need to approach it now? Well, we've got to make the best of what we've got. So going on about we need more police officers, we need more council people or, or whatever enforcement officers, that won't, that you know, we can say that to a blue in the face, it won't change anything. But uh, yeah. what, what I found is tea and cakes is a good thing if you can find a reason to get people in a room with tea and cakes and listen to what listen to what they've got to say uh and you you will do well one of the pro- one of the problems i had was i was accused by the local authority of uh stirring up the locals as one one thing that came i was stirring up the locals and going native and all these different things and actually all I was doing was listening and I found yeah. a way to listen yeah and we we did we put a massive barbecue on for them once and I, I got the funding for the meat from my mate who's a butcher and you know get doing things that get people together and then you hear something you get like a little gem and you think I, and we you know you can think oh that's a good idea we'll do that you know it's just a tiny tiny little gem or uh, or, or whatever, but you, you've got to be in a whatever you do with the resources you've got, you've got to be listening and in a position where you can listen and learn from each other. And I think that's the thing. Uh, and when people feel they're actually genuinely being heard and listened to, uh, and you take and they see you doing, you don't have to do much to prove that you're listening, but just a little thing, then things can change, you know, and we can get on and do our. Yeah go on and do our job and that's the thing that I'm saying is we can do the nice stuff and that you know it gives us makes us all feel glowy and warm inside but at the same time we can knock down a door if we need to and deal with whatever we need to do you know because you've got the yeah. space then because you're not dealing with a load of rubbish you know rubbish anti-social behavior absolutely I've already <laughs> yeah. said that I've always said that you know mm. if you get that aspect right it then frees you up to actually do some of the hardcore stuff. Yeah, and you know, um, which you want to do. And I think sometimes yeah. we miss that point. Yeah, yeah. and and the yeah, public absolutely. want that as well, don't they? The, the victims want that. And if you say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I can't get to you and deal with that really horrible stuff until it gets really bad and becomes like serious end crime," because I'm dealing with all this stuff, what it does is it takes time. That's the trouble. And yeah. I said I had a really good uh, Mike. He was a really good inspector, and he said, "David, I don't. I'm not even going to look at your results for a year." Don't care what happens, just get on with it for a year and then we'll see what changes have been made. Whereas other inspectors were looking at the, the traffic lights on the wall every week. They couldn't see further forward than oh. one week and further back than one week. The micromanagement. Yeah. The micro yeah, yeah. management's former policing. Yeah. And didn't it didn't yeah. work. Yeah, people, I've been and, there. Yeah, and it and it didn't and the other the, lots of things that didn't work is that they couldn't take account of the fact school holidays and all that sort of stuff and people doing different and I never could convince the local authority that actually 
children don't follow your local authority boundaries. <laughs> there was one school. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's one school, one secondary school in Camborne. That's where all, most of 95% of teenagers will go to that school. So to get there, some of them have to cross two neighborhoods to get to the school. And that's where you see them. So if you go and just concentrate in their neighborhoods, you won't see them because they're only in their houses then. But when they're going to the yeah. schools and their parents are taking them to the schools and all that, if you follow those routes or stand in those routes, you'll meet them and you can talk with them. You know? yeah. But absolutely, tie, yeah. tying yourself to a geographical, you know, just a line on a map just doesn't doesn't work. A circle in a map. No, it doesn't work. work. It doesn't yeah. work. They don't see it the same way as you know local authorities and police see it. You know, they don't see boundaries. It's just an area to them. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right there. Um, we're coming towards the end now. I just wondered yeah. if there's anything else you wanted to cover um, that we may not have covered already that you wanted to uh, bring into the interview. Uh, I could I could sum up, I suppose, and say that the key thing is mutual learning between the people and anyone connected with that ASB, you know, whether yeah. that's the police or local authority, enforcement teams or, or, or whatever. And we can all learn from each other, I think. And in in that, in the spirit of working that way, we can come up with ideas to help people without telling them what to do. We can we can yeah. support we can support them doing what they want to do. We've got loads of you know people say we've got no resources. We've got loads of resources. Our wages are paid for a start. You know the wages are paid. We don't have to get extra extra money to pay for youth workers. We're we're there. You know, so we can use the resource we can use the resources we've got, but it does take a bit of effort. And I think the downside is there's always someone going to say you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, but. Uh, but, we need to empower more people, don't we? In communities, like you said, you know, we need to empower people. I think for too long we've probably, you know, held hands for too long, and I think there's there's an element of that that we need to do to guide people. But ultimately, we want to try and empower them to be able to, you know, keep these projects and that sustainable, and keep mm -hmm. them moving. You know, similar to what you've done with the dance. You know, yeah. even though you're now retired, you're still keeping that going. Um, yeah. But I think we need to empower other community members to also be equally as um, passionate about projects and to keep them moving. Because I think sustainability is one of the big things that I think sometimes we get these projects come in, they're here today, gone tomorrow, everybody reaps the publicity from them and then they fall by the wayside. And I've seen that so many times oh, in my career. Parachuting in with a you, yeah basically all you're doing is you, you all that money just goes to pay someone's wages and then they move on and do a different project absolutely and david and this is what i want to see a change yeah. yeah this is what i want to see a change because i think we need people within mm. to to have a say and empower those communities because they know those communities better well yeah these people that get parachuted in don't really understand those yeah. communities and i mean the thing is i mean my old old friend cormac russell i mean he's, he says there are some things that the people can do themselves let them do them I think themselves. I think, I think I lost you there, David, for oh, a few okay. seconds. So you might say, just have to go back. All right. I was going to say, my old my old friend Cormac Russell. He says that uh, there are some things that the people can do themselves. Let them do them themselves. There are some things yeah. that the people can only do with our help. Help them. Yes. And there are some things that only we can do. Do them. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it's like, if we do the things that only we can do, 
which is fine, which might might be the hard end dealing with the antisocial behaviour, for example. No one else can do that. Yeah. We can help help when we know what they want us to do by using our resources, using our experience, you know, giving them rooms for free. That's another one. If you give people a community room for free, great, because that's always the, 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 the one thing. Oh, you've got, yeah, you can have a community a, yeah. room, but it's going to cost you £40 a night for the heating. They won't come. And then let them get on and do what they want to do as well, I think. Yeah. 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 Mm, I like it. How can people reach out to you, David, if they need if they want to contact you and find out a bit more about all the work that you do? Uh LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Uh David Ainsley. Okay. Yeah. Just uh I, I probably probably probably, I think. Or they can or they can look at the uh TR14 as webpage, www.tr14ers.org.uk and there's a a link and they can email me through that if they want. Brilliant. David, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with me today. Thank you. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's good to speak to someone that's got a very similar idea around community policing, neighbourhood policing, and the sort of stuff you've done. It kind of resonates with me so much. So really thank you for sharing those experiences with me. And um, it's been a great hour to spend sort of talking about you know that and how we can you know hopefully change things in the future so just a big thank you from me really well you're very welcome and i thoroughly enjoyed it and i couldn't believe till i looked at the clock how well it had gone but i don't only <laughs> talk very much but there you go i did this time but thank you yeah great question <laughs> it's no <laughs> it's no problem david and uh thank you again to all our listeners we really appreciate your support with this podcast and we'll catch you on the next episode That was a great interview uh, with David Ainsley. David, again, so open and honest around his career and how he became a community sergeant where other people didn't want the role. He took that role and gave it 100%. And I think the results speak for themselves. I have a very similar open approach to how I tackle neighborhood community policing so me and David are very much on the same page and I can't thank him enough for sharing those experiences with us. Thank you again for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Please like, rate and um, subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We want to grow our listenership as much as possible over the next 12 months. Thank you again and we'll catch you on the next episode. Alongside support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Barden Co-Recruitment in partnership with District 4, you have been listening to the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon.